0: Job, week three. We have tackled two weeks of Job so far, and Job is a really big, tricky book. It's a big story. It's hard to know what to do with a whole lot of it. So we're going to see how we go today. And I want to start off by thinking about these words. It's not fair. It's not fair. Because my kids have been saying that more and more, and more, and more, and more. Uh, Yeah, it's all the time. Often with a bit of a whinge as well. It's not fair. It's not fair. I know it's not just my kids, uh, but it happens like, okay, no dessert tonight. Not fair. We've been trying to put a stop to it. Okay, that's one. Uh, Or it happens, time to pack away the games. Not fair. That's two. Sometimes it works, Uh, but it keeps going and going. So I wonder... When was the last time you heard those words? It's not fair. When was the last time you said those or thought those yourself? It's not fair. I reflect this week, uh, or there was a week ago, with the derby uh, between Gaff and Brayshaw. There was a bit of an incident, and there's been lots of commentary in terms of, hey, was that a fair punishment? Was that not fair? And there's whole sorts of different thoughts and arguments going on back and forth there. Was that fair? And it really depends on who you ask and what perspective, what team maybe you barrack for, uh, how you saw it, but as well as what perspective you take on that. It's hard to define, I think, where this sense of justice, where this sense of fairness comes from. Because I certainly haven't been teaching my six-year-old and three-year-old that life is meant to be fair. I haven't been consciously teaching them with those words. But they've taken this up. It's not fair. But it seems to me that our definition of fair isn't exactly fair. And that's okay because, well, my kids, they're six and three, still got some more learning to do. Uh, But what constitutes fair for them, and I think for us as well, generally is, do I get what I want? Do I get what I want? If not, well, then it's not fair. My kids aren't concerned with whether the whole world gets dessert that night. They're concerned about whether they do or not. They're concerned about their own situation. And so today, we continue looking at the book of Job. This is week three out of four, so we've got one more week next week. And today, we're going to be looking at how Job brings this statement to God. It's not fair, God. Quick recap of where we've been over the last two weeks. Job is a wisdom book, and it is full of a whole lot of poetry, a whole lot of illustrative language, a whole lot of Uh, Big pictures, hyperbole, to try and get the point across about what they're talking about. And so we've talked about how there probably was a Job-type person, some sort of person that was really righteous, who had lots of things and then lost them. But this is a wisdom book, and so uh, the text that we have here can't be read as an historical account of this person. As poetry, it's wisdom literature. John Walton asks whether we could consider this book as a thought experiment. So there was this person who had everything. We'll call him Job. Uh, let's take his righteousness to the impossible extreme. There was nothing wrong about him. He did everything perfect. And then let's take his suffering to the other possible extreme. He lost everything, absolutely everything. And then we'll ask questions about that, and we'll see, well, how does that change him? How does that change his faith and reverence to God. So this then is the question of the whole book of Job. Is Job's righteousness, is Job's respect of God, is Job's respect of creation and everyone else only there because God has made his life real easy? If Job didn't have such a great life, would he actually turn from God? So that's the challenger. That's the challenger's question that we've been introduced to at the start. In your Bible, it might say the Satan, where it talks uh, at the start, the Satan brings up this challenge to God. Aaron talked about how we might be better to read that as the challenger rather than the devil, Satan type New Testament theology that we have. So the whole question, yep, uh, not quite there. We're just recapping the whole thing so far. So that was chapter two where the challenger brings uh, the challenge to God. We will be in chapters 21 up to 31. So we're covering a whole big chunk today. Uh, so the, the question in the book focuses on this idea of the retribution principle. And that's like the Santa Claus outlook that we see and we still see so prevalent today. If you're a good boy, if you're a good girl, if you're a good man, a good lady, then life should go well. It's what we teach our kids with Santa Claus. If you've been naughty, then hardships will come. You'll get coal in your stocking. And so with this question, we also have the question of God's justice. Is God just? Does God act justly? If he does, then he should prosper the righteous and the wicked should get punished. But as we saw last week, the outcomes, the circumstances that we find ourselves in, can't always be attributed to our own actions or inactions. Sometimes it's someone else's actions that affect what we're, what we're dealing with, the situation that we're faced with. Sometimes it is our own actions, but sometimes it's just something completely out of our control. So this idea of the retribution principle that the righteous will prosper doesn't seem to fit. Aaron pointed out last week that wisdom is being able to discern in any given situation if this suffering is in fact my fault and something I need to repent of, change my mind, change my action, or if it's something that's outside of my control. In that case, maybe we just need to accept, mourn, and work, try and work through. So as we've been looking through these books, we've been talking a lot about the word genre this year. So still recapping. And it's important when we read any text, it's important that we understand what we are reading. So this word genre is really important. It needs special attention so that we just don't read the whole Bible as historical narrative, because it's not. I was reminded of the importance this week of genre again. My three-year-old daughter came up to me. She'd just got a new cookbook, had all these kids' wonderful cooking recipes in it, uh, cakes and pies and soups and all sorts of things. And she's been flicking through. I'm busy doing something. I'm uh, not sure what, but she's flicking through. Oh, that looks good. That looks good. I want to do that. I want to do that as she goes through the book, and she gets to the page, and she's like, this is what I want to cook. I really want to cook this thing. Please, 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 Dad, please, Dad, please, Dad. I stopped what I was doing. I looked at it, and I said, no, we can't cook that because that's, that's the page at the start which is teaching you how to measure out the ingredients. It's a whole picture, a whole page full of all these measuring cups. It looked fun. It looked good. But if we actually followed that recipe instead of a cake or a pie a pizza we'd end up with a bench full of full measuring cups and that would be it it wouldn't be very good she'd be disappointed if we ended up with that she was reading the whole book as every page was a recipe so we have to be careful in terms of how we read different parts what was the author intending especially especially if we're then going to base our lives on what we've read so the book of job is wisdom literature It's a thought experiment. Questions and answers are proposed. But a whole lot of what is proposed isn't actually wise, isn't right. And we're going to tackle some of that. Week one, we looked at how God is still with us even when we are suffering. Last week, we looked at this idea of the retribution principle, how it doesn't actually account for all of our existence. God is not a vending machine, is what we talked about. You can't just offer two bits of sacrifice, a little bit of reverence, a little bit of praise, and then expect to get a house and 10 cattle or a mansion and a Lamborghini. The world doesn't work like that. Life doesn't work like that. So now we get into a track, tracking the change in the book of Job. Because the whole book of Job, 42 chapters thereabouts, uh, the first half, the first bit, starts off with this dialogue section. Job loses everything. And his friends come and say, hey, you must have done something wrong. They go back and forward, back and forward. Job says, no, I haven't. His friends said, yes, you have. And then at chapter 28, which we're going to focus on today, there's a shift. And in my Bible, it's called the interlude where wisdom is found. So Job chapters 21 to 31, we're focusing on today. In chapter 28 right now, is titled the interlude where wisdom is found. It seems to be a bit of a different voice here in this interlude that we're hearing. It doesn't say, so we don't know for sure, but maybe it's the narrator again. But we're going to look at what this book has to say about wisdom and justice. But here, wisdom is found in God. So let's have a look at Job chapter 28 together. Open your Bibles, open your phones. Uh, we'll jump around a little bit. But a little another side note. When I open the text of Job, I actually find myself getting really confused and struggle to focus on it. It's poetic language. There's lots of indents everywhere. There's lots of repetition because there's lots of pictures that are being painted. And I actually struggle to focus with that. So I've been spending a lot of time listening to the book of Job. And that's just opened up a whole lot more uh, in terms of what's being communicated for me. So maybe you could try that this week as well, just on your phone. BibleGateway.com has lots of different translations you can listen to. I found that helpful this week to paint this whole picture in my mind of what's happening. But chapter 28, it starts with this picture, how we search for valuable things. There's this whole big section talking about how there's rubies and gold and diamonds and silver out in the world, but they're not just out there, they're actually buried, they're hidden away. In Job 28, it talks about how we have to mine for those things. We actually have to search for those things. It talks about how hey, some of God's creation, some of God's creatures, like the eagles, they're pretty majestic. The lions, they're pretty powerful, but they don't actually know about these things buried under the ground. You need technology. You need know-how. You need desire if you want to find these treasures. And find those treasures, we, humanity, do, don't we? We dig up, we blow up, we tunnel, we frack, has all sorts of things to try and get these precious commodities. We go hard to get these things out of the ground. But Job here is saying, the book of Job, the narrator, we can't find wisdom the same way. We cannot use technology. We cannot use know-how to discover wisdom. Job 28, verse 12 to 19 says, But where, oh where, Will they find wisdom? Where does insight hide? Mortals don't have a clue. Haven't the slightest idea where to look. Earth's depths say it's not here. Ocean deep's echo, never heard of it. It can't be bought with the finest gold. No amount of silver can get it. Even famous Ophir gold can't buy it. Not even diamonds and sapphires. Neither gold nor emeralds are comparable extravagant jewelry can't touch it pearl necklaces ruby bracelets why bother none of this is even a down payment on wisdom you can pile gold and african diamonds as high as you will they can't hold a, ha- a candle to wisdom see wisdom is really valuable and wisdom is hard to find wisdom's also hard to define Dictionary says it's the act of being wise. Uh, It's a lot of subjectiveness to wisdom, isn't there? The most helpful thought I found was by Walton. John Walton says, Wisdom is a coherent understanding of a situation. So you've got a situation, there's something's happening, something has happened, there is something. Wisdom is knowing exactly what has happened. Can see it from all different angles. Can know what has been done and what should be done because of that. No wonder wisdom is really hard to find because nearly every situation, every decision has a subjective nature to it. My view is different to how you would view this thing. We're looking at it from different angles. We've got different experiences. It takes someone capable of seeing all of it in order to have wisdom. And the narrator agrees. The narrator continues in verse 23 that God alone knows the way to wisdom. He knows the exact place to find it. He knows where everything is on earth. He sees everything under heaven. After he commanded the winds to blow and measured out the waters, arranged for the rain, set off explosions of thunder and lightning, he focused on wisdom. Made sure it was all set and tested and ready. Then he addressed the human race. Here it is, fear of the Lord. That's wisdom. And insight means shunning evil. So in God is found wisdom. Our definition of a coherent understanding. So in God is found coherence, is found order. God is the author of order. We looked at that in Genesis. Out of chaos, God makes order. God makes coherence. God is the author of of wisdom. Wisdom finds its source in God, but we need to be careful that we don't just reduce God to wisdom, because God is even bigger than wisdom. Wisdom is a part of who God is. We get glimpses of wisdom, don't we, on how the world works, because God has left those marks of order, those marks of coherence throughout all creation. We have scientists chasing parts of that wisdom here, there, and everywhere in lots of different fields, but we still only get glimpses when a massive sideball comes in and just changes everything, ruins everything, completely unexpected, throws us off balance, we struggle to make sense of what happened. How could they? Why did they? Why has this happened? Our wisdom is limited, but the narrator states that we can find it. We can find it by having fear in the Lord. Now, this simple little phrase takes me a lot to get my head around. Continually so. Fear of God. Firstly, this whole book of Job that we're studying, that we're looking at, the challenger in Job is proposing that it is fear of God taking things away that is actually making Job a righteous person. So the whole premise of the book they're testing is, will Job still fear God when there's nothing left for God to actually take away. And this is partly why I struggle with the word fear, because it sets up this protection thing, this protection idea in my mind, which seems to build on the retribution principle. Don't step out of line, otherwise everything you have, everything you want, will be taken away from you. We end up fearing the loss of stuff. We pay reverence to God out of this fear, which is exactly what the book of Job is testing and searching and saying that's not... The best way to live but also with the word fear jesus comes along and he changes the picture a bit doesn't he jesus says that god is on our side stop hiding like adam was and eve was in the garden trying to hide from god be embraced by the father who loves you so fear must mean something different than cowering in a little corner pulling the bed sheets over our head trying to hide from God because God is going to get you. I actually found that there's a word for that this week. Wikipedia is helpful. Theophobia. Phobia of God. Arachnophobia. Phobia of spiders. Theophobia. Phobia of God. And this is unhealthy. It's all tied up in the retribution principle idea. Wrath of God. Zeus-like lightning bolts. Make sure you don't get on the wrong side of God. Santa Claus type thinking. but instead of phobia of God, we're talking about reverence. Instead of phobia of God, we're talking about awe. Instead of phobia of God, we're talking about respect and we're talking about trust. When we say fear of God, we're taking, we're talking, about taking God seriously. Not making God small. Not changing who God is. And John Walton again gives a helpful list in what this looks like by giving opposites. So he says, when we don't fear God, when we don't fear God, then we think God is detached. Therefore, we can just ignore whatever he says. The opposite of fearing God, taking God seriously, is thinking that God is incompetent. Therefore, can treat him with disdain. The opposite of thinking God is taking God seriously is thinking God is limited or impotent. Therefore, can be scorned, teased, he's got no power. The opposite of taking God seriously is thinking God is corrupt. Therefore, to be admonished, where to tell God off. The opposite of taking God seriously is thinking God is short-sighted, therefore to be advised. God, you don't understand what's actually going on here. Let me fill you in. Let me tell you what's actually going on. The opposite of fear of God is thinking God is petty, therefore to be resented. When we don't take God seriously, when we don't fear God, we assume that something other than God is at the center of the universe. And often we put ourselves there, the other things that we love and take care of. But that's the battle. That's the question that we're facing. Fear of God is only the first bit of guidance here that we find at the end of chapter 28. The other bit we have to mention is the fact that departing from evil is understanding. So it's not just do some sacrifice Uh, pay some reverence say weekly prayer do your religious thing show your reverence uh, but it's actually leaving evil behind that is how we might show our fear in God living a life that trusts God respects his way of doing things where we align ourselves our ways our actions our thoughts with his as best as we can this is wisdom or the book of Job is saying is the start of wisdom at least but this is actually what Job has been arguing that he has done the whole time. Job says, I have feared God. Job says, I've actually been taking care of all the vulnerable people that have come across my path. I've done these things. I've been upright. I've been an upright person. And we're going to unpack that in a second. But we see that Job has not just tried to appease God out of fear. This whole test, was it just out of fear, out of concern for what god might take away but his friends actually keep suggesting that his friends say hey just turn around just say give a sacrifice just say sorry you must have done something wrong and then you'll get all your stuff back but job says no i looked after the poor i looked after the orphans i've done all the right things i looked after my employees i looked after my wife i didn't gloat over anyone else when they suffered Job seems to be on the path of wisdom. Job is doing well. But I mentioned that chapter 28 is a bit of a divide in the book. A bit of a... it's an interlude. We had the friends giving their wisdom, but we see that their wisdom is lacking. It just doesn't answer the questions. Later on, after chapter 28... There's a couple of other discussions that happen. Speeches given by people. Elihu is one guy. And then we hear from God later on. But we're just focusing on the middle here. We'll talk about God, what God says next week. Because in chapters 29 to 31, Job has one last stand. He puts it all on the line. He's, this is his last defense. And here we also see that chapter 28 is a shift from thinking about just justice and thinking about wisdom, which we've been talking about this morning. Job and us, we're being challenged into trusting God's wisdom. We're being challenged into trusting that God's wisdom is bigger than our understanding, bigger than the justice principle. God's wisdom is bigger than the retribution principle. Could we even go so far, in keeping with the mining precious jewel analogy, that's being used, and say that wisdom is more precious than justice. Job is definitely still very concerned with justice, vindication, vindication of his name, and I often am too. Again, the Gaff Brayshaw incident this week highlighted it again for me. My view on what should have been done is right, surely, And we've had lots of people sharing their views in lots of different forums. It was pretty plain to me what should have been done, how it should have been handled. Well, Job cries out as well, it's not fair. In chapter 29, he says, I used to be respected. Everyone listened to me. They saw I did great things. Job had a great reputation. He knew who he was, as did everybody else. He was a man of standing. He was just, he was fair, he was fathering, he was caring, he was strong, he was a leader, he was a good man. But now Job is in the mud. He's being teased by kids, they're writing mean songs about him, he's being ignored by everyone, including God. So Job takes matters into his own hands. He lays at all the righteous things that he's ever done, all the righteous things that he used to do, all the shunning of evil that he's done, that he's been a part of. He puts it on the line, and he says, hey, is there anyone here that can disagree? Can anyone say that I haven't done all these wonderful things? There's silence, or it doesn't say, but we assume there's silence. And then he takes it up to God. This is where Job starts to stray. He takes this need for vindication, this cry out that it's not fair, up to God's. Because essentially, he thinks he's saying, Hey, God, I can do things better than you. Job is speaking in both of these chapters here. Chapter 24, chapter 29, this is both Job speaking. But we see in chapter 29, Job is talking about all the great things that he has done. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame, father to the needy, champion of the abused aliens. I grabbed street thieves by the scruff of the neck and made them give back what they'd stolen. This is Job going about and being righteous, helping people. Chapter 24, Job's talking about God. God, people are dying, right and left, groaning in torment. The wretched cry out for help and God does nothing. Acts like nothing is wrong. Job effectively says, God, I've looked after the widows and the orphans, yet you pay no attention to them. You don't answer their prayers. Job's asking some big questions, but he's also being a bit sneaky. He's highlighting all the wondrous works that he has done. He's saying, God, if I have not done these things, then say so. Tell everyone. He's asked the crowd, and now he's declaring it to God. God, say something. Job here is trying to manipulate God. He's trying to back God into a corner. He's desperate to save his own name, have his name vindicated, have his status returned, and so he's trying to force a deal with God. He says, God, if I have sinned, then strike me down in front of everyone. If God is silent, then everyone's going to presume that he is actually vindicated, that he didn't sin. He's going to get his name and his status back. Job is really confident here, but he's taking a big gamble too. But he's also stepping into dangerous territory with how he is treating God, how he's trying to manipulate God. But why is such a righteous man doing this? Well, he's actually stuck because he knows that he hasn't transgressed. Number one, he hasn't stuffed up. He hasn't made a mistake. He's done the right thing. Number two, he knows that the retribution principle is how the world has to work. He's sure that that's how the world has to work. So he's only left with God must be the one to blame. God must be doing something wrong. And he's demanding that God comes down, changes who God is, to make things right for Job. Job isn't seeking wisdom. Job is seeking justice. But maybe we shouldn't assume that there is justice. Maybe Job should instead be seeking wisdom. Maybe justice is the wrong lens to look at creation through. Now, this seems a bit borderline treacherous to even suggest that justice might not be the chief component in how we should live our lives because we believe in a God of justice. We believe that God is very concerned that everyone be treated right, be treated well, be cared for. God has set up laws and laws and laws and rules and rules and rules and punishments and things to be obeyed, items, articles of justice. God also has the promise of eternity, where uh, justice can be extended into the afterlife. God will make all things right. But even that, as I reflect on that, doesn't require justice. After all, Jesus taking our sins isn't just... Anyone else taking on the consequences of someone else, even if they choose to do so, isn't justice, it's grace. So instead of justice being the better way to view the world, maybe the better way is grace. Instead of Job demanding that God make everything right for everybody, including himself, maybe there's a bigger picture unfolding, which Job and us, we're just not privy to. Where does this question come? It's not fair. Where does that question come from? Earlier in the year, we looked at Genesis and how Adam and Eve wanted that knowledge of good and evil. And God said, "Hey, no, you're not ready for it." They took out their hand, they took the fruit, they ate it, and they enjoyed it, and lives changed from then on. Genesis says that that's been our downfall. That's where this question comes from. It's not fair. We try and be like God. We try and judge what is good. We try and judge what is evil. Jesus unpacks this as well. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples, they walk past a blind man. He was blind from birth, and the question is asked. The disciples say, who caused this man to be blind? Who sinned, him or his parents? Who's to blame is what the disciples are asking. Question of justice. Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause effect here. Look instead for what God can do. We need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here, working while the sun shines. Jesus is effectively saying, don't worry about the question of justice. Look forward into how you're going to live now and trust God, fear God, share grace with those around you like you were meant to do, like you were made to do, as is your role to do. Look after the orphan, look after the widow, look after the refugee, but you weren't created to be judge. That's God's job. Trust him to do his job, and you go and do yours. Job is so caught up in who he was, what he has lost, the indignity of it all, the unfairness of it all for himself, that he would rather God change, God be less God so that he could be made right and I wonder where we do the same I wonder where we make deals with God where we expect God to act a certain way because of what we've done because of what we promised to do consciously or subconsciously just assume I wonder where we expect life to turn out a certain way because of who we are Job shows us that we are not in a position to know all the facts. We cannot access true and full wisdom. Only God has that proper picture. Or maybe our identity is so wrapped up in what we do, in what we have, that when we lose those things, as we will at some point, it feels like we are lost too. We are no one. That the only way to get our identity back, who we are, is to force someone else to change. Someone else to be less than what they were, so that we can be more of who we want to be. Job did that with God. Job's trying to do that with God. God, you be less so I can be more. But we do it with other people around us as well. We find ourselves not where we want to be, not who we want to be, not where we used to be. We demand that other people make it better for us make us feel better about ourselves. This manipulation is not trusting God. This force in God's hand is not fear of the Lord. It's not wisdom. Though, if we submit, if we trust, despite our circumstances, which is hard to do, then we're on the path to wisdom, which I think is a far bigger picture than justice. Justice. Maybe instead of saying, that's not fair, we might try asking ourselves, try asking God, how can I actually react here? How can I respond? How can I show grace? Now, that's not to say that we can't mourn. It's not to say that we can't be upset. It's not to say that we can't cry out. We can't find a shoulder. We can't ask God the big, tough questions. Job gives lots of examples of those. There's lots more in the Bible as well. But if we get stuck there... Then that's not good. During the week, I found it helpful. Uh, John Walton was summarising Job, and he said that if we come to the book of Job when we're in the midst of suffering, it's probably not actually a good thing. It's probably not a good idea. It's probably not going to bring relief. There are still so many questions unanswered in Job, but. John Walton says, it is extremely useful to use Job as a brain-training exercise, soul-forging exercise now, so that our thought patterns, so that our understandings, that when suffering comes, we're better placed to maintain righteousness, better placed to trust in God despite our circumstances. Last little list. I found this helpful in terms of something practical, something to grasp onto. Six-point checklist as a path to wisdom. Trust God rather than blame or make demands. Trust God for strength to endure. The path to wisdom would include not expecting everything to make sense. Channeling resentment at the fallenness of the world rather than that God, who has actually done so much to initiate its redemption. Resist believing that you, or me, could run the world better than God does. Trust that God is wise. Again, especially if you're stuck in the middle of suffering at the moment, this list might seem um, unhelpful, might seem cliché, trite. What can I actually do with that? But I found it helpful as a bit of a grounding place in terms of what does all this look like, this wisdom? What does it look like to fear God, to trust God, to take God seriously? Again, the issue is not asking questions of God. The issue is not, can I pray for that? Should I not pray for that? The issue is not wishing circumstances to change, but in demanding that, God, it's our way or the highway. We're simply not in a position to demand that of God. And as Jesus told his disciples, you have a job to do. God made you to do something. God has a job to do. Let God do God's job and you do yours. Let's pray.